0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by RenaSola, a Tier 1 solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. RenaSola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. To find your local representative, go to RenaSola.us, that's R E N E S O L A.U.S. Or give them a call at 415 570 2647. For the week of April 3rd, 2015, this is The Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Green Tech Media Senior Editor Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. This week, can small modular reactors revolutionize the nuclear industry? We'll talk with an entrepreneur trying to make it happen and ask her what it will take to usher in Nuclear 2.0. Then we'll look at some predictions for solar in 2015 from our very own Shale Khan. Finally, an update on the connected home. We'll dissect the strategies of companies making strides in home energy management. There's only so much talking I can do on these subjects, so let me introduce the rest of the gang to help me out. Jigger Shaw is in New York. He is the president of Generate Capital. How are you, sir? How's your week? I'm doing well.
1: I'm doing well. We're like firmly into spring, which is fantastic.
0: Are you there? I was just up in New York earlier this week, and it didn't feel like spring. It was nice and warm down here in D.C., but it was frigid up there.
1: Yeah, I remember when you were up here because I met Julia
0: up here, she sounds yeah. like she's uh, doing a great job on the utility stuff. Indeed. That's Julia Piper, one of our senior writers. And our senior VP of research is also with us, filling in for Catherine this week. It is Shale Khan. He's in Boston. He's also our solar soothsayer. How are you,
2: sir? <laughs> soothsayer. It's, you're the first one who's ever called me that, but I like I like the alliteration, if nothing else. Indeed, yeah. Well, you're good at making predictions, at least for PV, because that's where we have the
0: data. And we're going to talk more about that later. But none of us here is probably good at predicting the trajectory of nuclear, but we are joined by an expert who's got a PhD in nuclear physics and also happens to be the CEO of an innovative nuclear startup who may be able to help us out in this area. It is Leslie Duan, the CEO of Transatomic Power, a Boston-based company working on commercializing a molten salt reactor that recycles spent nuclear fuel. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about it
0: well we're happy to have you on, and uh, you're here to educate us about the next generation of nuclear technologies and uh you know where the industry could potentially go. so you are part of this new breed of companies trying to reinvigorate the nuclear industry and I want to get into what transatomic is developing, but first a little one o one to get all our listeners on the same page. Um, people are very familiar with light water reactors I uh, just help us understand the major ways that small modular reactors differ from the large nuclear plants we know today. Obviously, some of them are just smaller versions of conventional light water plants, and some, like yours, are very different. Paint that landscape for us.
3: So all 100 of the operating commercial reactors in the U.S. today are what's called light water reactors. But there's this whole new generation of advanced nuclear reactors that have entirely different technologies that have a whole suite of new benefits. So transatomics, molten salt reactors, one of them, there's also liquid metal cooled reactors, gas cooled reactors. The majority of these technologies, interestingly enough, were first developed in the very early days of the nuclear industry in the 1950s or the 1960s. But just now over the past 10-15 years are being reimagined, reworked with new materials, new mechanical designs that are making them incredibly promising for cheap and safe power production.
0: And that's what you're doing with Transatomic. So you're building this commercial scale molten salt reactor, and you're not starting from scratch. This design was actually based on one developed at Oak Ridge National Lab in the 60s. So, so how does this technology work as you're designing it? And what drew you to that original testing from the government? Because that gave you a decent amount to work with, a lot of testing.
3: The original Oak Ridge version of the molten salt reactor, the one that they built and operated and tested in the late 1960s, what originally drew my co-founder and me to this design was its incredible safety case. So this type of reactor, even if there was a complete loss of off-site electric power, even if there weren't any operators on site, it was able to shut itself down safely. And what's more, it's liquid fuel uh, during an emergency shutdown automatically freezes solid. So even in your worst case scenario accident, the fuel fails into a solid form rather than in a liquid or gaseous form that could eventually be pushed off of the site.
1: So, you know, I mean, when I was at the University of Illinois doing my engineering degree, I had Professor Rusick in, for nuclear engineering. And, you know, I think that what you learn in the 90s is basically that you can build nuclear plants with... Uh, Without active safety mechanisms, with passive safety mechanisms so that, you know, even in the worst case situations, you're always safe. I think the challenge, though, has been that the cost of those technologies really hasn't come down since the 90s because we really haven't had a massive building program outside of, you know, let's say China recently.
3: There's some distinction to be made between the passive safety features in a light water reactor and the passive safety features in an advanced reactor. Um, one of the tricky things with light water reactors is that you can add um, passive safety. You can you can make it very safe for up to several days after a loss of electric power off-site, but it ends up adding a great deal to the cost of the plant for a light water reactor to add in those safety features, whereas with the advanced reactors... Um, you don 't need as many as many backup systems to get that full passive safety, but another very important piece of it that you, um, that you bring up is just the fact that the cost is driven up because we haven 't built very many of them you don 't have the, um, the experienced construction that have built reactor after reactor after reactor
0: well, and you 've said that that uh, in, in presentations that your design will cost two thirds the cost of a conventional nuclear power plant. How do you know that thus far?
3: So I think those cost estimates, it is on the one hand very early to be giving cost estimates because we haven't even built a prototype facility yet. But the, the main pieces that will drive down the cost for our facility are that we don't need the large, thick containment dome of a conventional reactor. A conventional reactor operates at many, many times atmospheric pressure. So you need that thick steel and concrete dome to keep the steam inside during an accident scenario. Uh, The molten salt reactor, as many other types of advanced reactors do, they operate at atmospheric pressure. So you need a much smaller stripped down containment dome. Uh, The dome itself for a light water reactor is 25% of the cost of the plant. So there's enormous cost savings just by being able to make a simplified version of that.
2: There's, um, you know, you mentioned the Cost side of it. I guess the other piece that I'm curious about is the timeline here. If because I imagine you said you don't even have a prototype up yet, and then presumably there's some extended scale up, and I imagine the regulatory approvals take a while. So if things all go according to plan, in sort of an ideal world, what does the timeline look for getting this technology up to scale?
3: It's a very long timeline. And the regulatory piece that you mentioned is one of the greatest um, error bars, uncertainty bars in this timeline. What we want to have is a prototype facility uh, to be able to break ground on a prototype facility by 2020, and then have the first commercial facilities up and running by 2025. And so on the one hand, that seems like a a ridiculously long timescale, 10 years until the first commercial facility. But in the nuclear realm, it um, it's remarkably quick. Like I talk to people, and they say, "You know, whoa, slow down. Don't wanna, don't wanna get ahead of yourself there." Um, but isn't not
1: isn't that the problem at the end of the day with nuclear? Is that when you think about the fact that you know solar energy has really gotten to where it is today? in about seven years, right? I mean, I think it was about 2006, 2007 that people started taking it seriously, and then it sort of ratcheted up to now we're at 100 gigawatts a year of renewable capacity in 2014, and things keep going up. So the question really becomes, like, is there going to be room in 2025, given the exponential growth rates of some of the other technologies, for folks to be, you know, really commercializing a new product in 2025?
3: matter what, there still will be room in the energy market for new types of nuclear reactors, new types of power sources in general 10 years from now. I think that worldwide energy demand is increasing so rapidly, especially in Asia and Africa, that there will be that, that large market and that growing market for many decades to come. But I definitely think that one of the biggest difficulties with nuclear in particular is that it takes so long to iterate on a product design.
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: because the reason I'm I'm so concerned about this is, you know, when you think about the Iran nuclear deal that we're, you know, talking about in the news this week, one of the biggest challenges with nuclear power is that, you know, which countries do you trust to actually scale up their nuclear industry? Like, I'm not sure that we want a lot of nuclear reactors in East Africa, for instance, or in West Africa, for that matter, given the fragility of the governments, versus um, – you know, India and Korea and the UAE, right? And so some of the challenges is that nuclear sort of gets conflated with, um, you know, with nuclear materials and and some of that stuff too.
3: That's very true. The proliferation aspect of it is, you know, something that we should always be concerned about. A lot of the advanced designs, um, the molten salt reactors in particular, are highly proliferation resistant. So they never, um, in our design specifically, there are no separated actinides. There's no enrichment of the uranium material. It consumes the plutonium that's in the used nuclear fuel if you're running off of used nuclear fuel. So we have that, that strong anti-proliferation case kind of baked into the design. But yeah. I agree that that does limit the markets to some degree.
0: And, and you say that your reactor uses uranium at enrichment levels below 2%,
2: right?
3: Yes. Yeah. And weapons-grade uranium is 90% plus, 95% plus right. uranium-235. I'm,
2: I'm curious how capital-intensive it is to scale up a technology like this. And, and presumably, it's, it's got to be relatively capital-intensive. And, and I wonder, especially given that it's just sort of notoriously hard now to find big amounts of capital for new energy technologies, whether you think that's going to be a bottleneck for you guys down the line.
3: That's definitely an issue for for nuclear in general. And, yeah, I think in nuclear, you know, there's the valley of death phase. For nuclear, it can be the Grand Canyon of death, perhaps. Um, but there are examples of other nuclear companies that are further along than where Transatomic is now that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, like TerraPower, the, the Bill Gates-backed uh, sodium fast reactor, uh, TriAlpha, the fusion company even, have all raised enormous amounts of capital for for testing these facilities. So I see the funding as being out there, even even private funding without tapping into government grants at all. So I think that would be feasible, but it's certainly a much heavier lift than for many other types of energy technologies.
0: Well, so you you know about all these reactor designs that have been tested previously by the government. I'm sure you're familiar with all the technologies that are emerging today that companies are are currently testing and raising money for. Give us a sense for where they stand, where the industry stands, right? How viable do you think the nuclear 2.0 industry is broadly? Um, You know, there's a lot more money that needs to go into this. We still need to see a lot more testing. We're still well before commercial plants. For those who may not follow this that closely... Give us your honest assessment for where the industry is at.
3: One of the things that's so exciting to me about this is just the number of uh, nuclear startups that have been founded just in the past year or two. Um, A a colleague of mine, Sam Brinton at the DC Think Tank Third Way, is uh, just putting together a study on this. And they're right now, I think... Uh, 40 or 45 nuclear startups in uh, North America alone. And about half of those were founded just within the past 12 months. And I think it's it's so exciting to me how, um, how large this potential market is and how many potential viable solutions are out there in the realm of, you know, molten salt reactors, sodium fast reactors, gas-cooled reactors. And Another piece that's incredibly exciting to me are the um, many different types of fusion technologies and fusion startups that are coming together right now. I think uh, five or six of them that exist nowadays that have a good amount of funding to work on their designs. So
0: are VCs generally interested in this? Like, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them are looking for pretty quick turnovers. What kind of VCs are getting pulled into this? You're looking at such a long time horizon. I can imagine that most are turned off.
3: Yeah, that was one of the tricky things for us going into this, because we're not going to have a commercial product before, um, well, 10 years is when the main commercial product will come to fruition. And so for a lot of VCs, that's well outside the five to seven year timeline of their fund. Um, we were just thrilled to start working with Founders Fund on on our technology. Um and
0: that's Peter Thiel's but- fund.
3: Yep. Peter Thiel's fund. And the way they were actually one of the big early investors in SpaceX. And so they like doing these longer time horizon investments and technologies that could potentially have a huge impact 10 or 15 years in the future.
1: Yeah, I just think that, you know, I'd love to. Just circle back with some of the things that you've said in the past. Like, I mean, you were on Fareed Zakaria, where you really talked about the U.S. potentially losing the race. And I'm curious whether you think that the new announcements from Secretary Muniz really puts small modular reactors back on track, and whether the U.S. really can, um, you know, I think give China a run for its money given the regulatory environment.
3: I think that those DOE allocations are very important, though those are primarily for just smaller versions of the existing light water reactors. Um, one thing that's very useful on the U.S. front is a new, new collaboration between the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the NRC that's working towards establishing a regulatory pathway for advanced reactors in the U.S. Because right now there's um, a very well-described, very well-established regulatory pathway for light water reactors and the small modular light water reactors. But there isn't that pathway yet for advanced reactors. Uh, Countries like Canada do have a pathway for advanced reactors. China is developing a better one. The U.S. is now putting together its own pathway. And I think that will be very useful for keeping this advanced nuclear technology in the U.S. and not forcing the companies to go overseas to commercialize their designs.
0: Yeah, and just the re- the regulatory piece of this could cost you tens of millions of dollars to get permits for your first plant, right?
3: <laughs> hundreds of millions <laughs> hundreds of dollars of millions. actually.
0: Yeah,
1: that's If
3: only yeah. it were tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> I'm not trying to
1: be a sort of, you know, sort of wet blanket on this stuff, but it just seems like the the pathway here is really really difficult. I mean, when you talk about SpaceX, it's one thing because You know, you've got folks like NASA and others who are saying, hey, we want a better way of taking stuff into space and we're happy to pay whatever it costs, right? So if you're half the cost, we're still going to do it. Whereas with nuclear electricity, the challenge is, is it's like, are you really going to be cheaper than natural gas? Are you really going to be cheaper than renewables with storage? Are you really going to be cheap enough for someone to actually want to bet the hundreds of millions of dollars to get it through the NRC? And then, you know, no matter what the technology does, you still have to deal with Greenpeace and all of the other folks who have a lot of power in the space. And you know, logic doesn't win the day.
3: I completely agree with that. I know that in nuclear, there are many, many challenges beyond the technology itself. On the tech side, we're completely confident that we'll be able to get this to operate within the timeline that we've put out and to get it to be very cheap on par with Cheaper than coal, on par with natural gas, and I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic about being able to work through the regulatory challenges within the U.S. and bringing environmentalists on board. I think that I think that transatomic's technology, in particular, um, because it's able to consume the existing stockpiles of used nuclear fuel, will be. I guess, more palatable to to many environmentalists than other types of nuclear reactor technology. Because to them, we can make the argument that, well, even if we shut down all of the nuclear reactors in the U.S. tomorrow, we'd still have these stockpiles of used nuclear fuel to deal with it, to deal with. And putting them into a reactor, extracting their remaining energy, is better than putting them in a repository for hundreds of thousands of years.
1: The last sort of, you know, question I had was, um, you know, it, 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 there does seem to be this uncomfortable us versus them mentality within the renewables and nuclear spaces, and I'm trying to figure out why nuclear and renewables aren't one big happy family saying we're the zero emission, you know, sort of low carbon future against. The high carbon future represented by natural gas and by coal.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for mentioning that because I feel extremely strongly that nuclear needs to form better alliances with solar and wind and hydro and geothermal because we're all emissions free technologies and I think we need to unite against fossil fuel sources, against coal in particular.
0: Well, Jigger, I mean, I'd love to get your thoughts on that issue because you know very well that uh, in places like Germany, uh, solar is completely decimating wholesale electricity prices. Uh, you know, Exelon is not in favor of wind because it hurts the economics of their nuclear plants. Like, there is an economic reason why there's this tension. Um, and then there's also sort of the big environmental groups that are not in favor of nuclear power. But uh, uh, in the actual electricity market, you have that inherent tension between nuclear and variable renewables.
1: Yeah, look, I think that the tension comes from the fact that people have crossed the line. You know, the renewable energy guys are not powerful enough to cross the line. I mean, what's crossed the line is Exelon spending a crap load of money to try to kill the wind PTC. There are folks that just cross the line. We we can certainly have interesting conversations, but I think I agree with Leslie that we have way more in common than we have – At odds with each other. I think Exelon needs to get on board and realize that this is not central generation versus distributed generation. This is low carbon generation versus high carbon generation.
2: Yeah, I would also add to that, too. I think the Germany example is a good one, except, you know, the reason that things are happening as they are in Germany is that there was a bunch of generation, there was a bunch of capacity that was built out without knowing or planning for the amount of renewable energy that was going to come online soon afterwards. And so as a result, you have all this legacy generation that's getting mothballed because wholesale power prices are so low. But if you do the whole thing with foresight and planning, you know it doesn't mean that you just end up with pure intermittent renewables. You could end up with more storage or natural gas or nuclear or any number of other things. I don't think it's they're necessarily foes in that regard.
0: So, Leslie, I have a final question for you, and I ask you this both in jest and with some level of seriousness. When you look at how long it's going to take to build out your plant, you look at the regulatory needs and and the permitting needs and how difficult it is to bring in venture capital. What the hell made you want to be an entrepreneur in the nuclear industry where successes (laughs) don't come easy? Um, Why didn't you go create an app like all the rest of the other other millennials out there?
3: (laughs) Oh, man. Well, this... I think that working in nuclear and working on the entrepreneurial side of nuclear is just one of the most exciting things I could possibly be doing with my life. Like, I love physics. I love engineering. I love making things that people will be able to use. And this is just thrilling. It takes it off all of those.
0: So your argument is that you believe nuclear does have a place in a high energy planet. Is that essentially where you're coming from when you look at what you think will be a viable industry 10 years from now?
3: Exactly. I think that in the future decades, nuclear will be an essential part of the carbon-free mix alongside hydro and wind and solar and geothermal. I think all of those carbon-free technologies will be necessary together.
0: Leslie Dewan is the CEO and co-founder of Transatomic Power based in Boston. Thank you so much. This was a fun conversation. We really appreciate you being on the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful.
0: We have a lot of solar installers who listen to this show and we know you're smart. So put that intelligence to work and consider a bundled equipment solution from RenaSola. Renasola manufactures and distributes solar panels, inverters, and racking systems. Think about the savings and procurement and shipping costs you could realize by choosing Renasola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And think about the time you could save as well. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 global subsidiaries. To find your local representative, go to renasola.us Or give him a call. Here's the number. 415-570-2647. All right, let's turn the tables on Shale now and look at some recent predictions for the U.S. solar market that he made recently. Uh, At the end of February, Shale wrote an article. He made uh, seven forecasts for M&A activity, solar plus storage, and utility ownership of solar, among others. Uh, Prophecies, if you will, depending on how much stock you put into his knowledge. I bring these up. Now, uh, because one already came true, and uh, many of the others, if they also materialize, are pretty good indicators of just how smoking hot solar is in the U.S. right now. So, Shale, I want to talk about your fifth prediction first, the one that already happened and we chatted about on this show. That is that a solar company will acquire a U.S.-based energy storage company. And, of course, Sun Edison acquired solar grid storage, which, which Jigger called a talent hire. Is this the type of acquisition you were thinking of?
2: Yeah, it's in the ballpark. Um, I mean, you know, it could have gone one of a couple of directions. You could have had a solar company that acquires a project development outfit like solar grid storage, either for the pipeline or, as Jigger said, for the team. Um, Or you could have a solar company acquiring a technology company, either – a storage, like a battery manufacturer, which I think is less likely, or one of the companies that is trying to do software, uh, management systems, storage management systems, analytics, things like that. So I think, I mean, it did already happen right after I predicted it. I I think there will be another one, though, still this year. There's a lot of little storage startups that are you know, still early days have raised a couple rounds of venture capital and uh, need capital to deploy and a lot of solar companies that want to get into the storage business. So I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, NRG or somebody like that making an acquisition this year.
0: So like a behind the meter storage developer?
2: Yeah, exactly. Storage developer or storage software provider that does the analytics and uh, battery management systems.
0: Yeah. What about the the tech side? Jigger, do you think anybody would ever, a solar company would ever acquire a battery manufacturer?
1: You never know. I never put anything past Lyndon in terms of his <laughs> desire to like rule the world. Um, look, I mean, you know, I don't think it makes any sense. You know, I mean, the the technology side of battery storage is one that's highly fraught with risk um you know like even with lithium-ion batteries you're seeing degradation rates of like 12 percent a year um which is not an easy thing to manage um and so if you're seeing degradation rates that high i'd like to work with someone like LG Chem or samsung as opposed to a brand new venture capital backed battery company who has no idea how their battery is going to perform for the next 10 years mm.
2: Yeah, well, but solar City doesn't need to, right? SolarCity's got a strong and not going anywhere partnership with Tesla. So to yeah. the extent that Tesla has a stationary storage business, SolarCity's, you know, they've made their bed. So uh, let's look at a
0: couple of the others. We probably don't have time to talk about all of them, but I'll pick a few that I think are most important. So you think that at least three utilities are going to propose programs that include ownership, direct ownership of rooftop solar, in their regulated territories. And I will say, by the way, that Shale and I are going to be hosting a debate on this at our Solar Summit, so come to that or watch the webcast, and then you can also listen to it on this feed. It'll be a lot of fun. But anyway, you think that a few of those are going to unfold this year. Any utilities that are likely candidates?
2: Uh, It's a good question. I've gotten a bunch of emails that have asked that exact question uh, since I wrote that article, and I can't speak to specifics. I know there are a few utilities that are considering it. I think you know, they have to put a lot of thought into it before they actually submit a proposal because uh, it's such a hot-button issue that the second that they submit a proposal like that publicly, they get a ton of pushback. Despite that, I just think it's, it's likely that – I know utilities are thinking about it. Um, APS and TEP in Arizona both proposed it and both got kind of scaled back versions of what they asked for to test it out. And you know, it's worth noting that uh, they weren't the first ones to do it. They were the first ones to do it in residential. But you know, back in 2010, I think it was, the California IOUs had a program to own distributed solar in their own territories as well. That Sometimes was commercial solar, solar. Right? Yeah, it was
0: 2008. That was 500 megawatts? So they, they contract – they Supposed bid to be, out 250? Got,
1: right. No, we and, destroyed them. We destroyed them. John Bryson right. decided to do that right before he left. I went to Adam Browning. We went to the CEC and said, hey, CPUC. We said, hey, why don't you split it in half and see who can do it cheaper? You know, The solar industry was bidding 22% less than what Southern California Edison's cost was. And the CPUC went back in and said, let's scrap the Southern California Edison program and put it all into the private sector. And that became the FitRAM program. Right.
0: Well, and that's what's interesting about the Arizona programs that have been proposed, right? So regulators said, Yeah, you can go about this, you can do ten megawatts or so, but we're not gonna we're not gonna give you a guaranteed rate of return until you've proven that this is cost competitive with the private sector. So um it'll be interesting to see whether they can actually compete with their own uh, owned programs.
1: It is crystal clear that they cannot compete on distributed generation. Their costs of capital are over 11% on equity. The cost of capital for Solar City is less than 8% on the cost of equity. The only place these guys can really compete is on utility scale, like Dominion and others. And even Dominion just made it an about face. They've decided to sell their entire solar program after being an active buyer last year.
0: So, Jigger, do you think that a few utilities proposing New, new ownership programs of rooftop solar is likely?
1: Yes, but I think that they should get their head out of their ass and actually decide on working in areas where the regular solar industry can't compete. Like, for instance, in like maybe low-income neighborhoods where they actually can use the solar to help you know, fortify their distribution feeders or for small businesses where, you know, dry cleaners and others who actually have a problem with, you know, like credit and et cetera. Because in from the utilities perspective, if the customer goes out of business or something like that, you have business interruption, but they can still take the power and use it within their system. And if they have any losses in the portfolio, they can socialize it um, by rate basing any losses, which we can't do in the private solar industry. So they should be focusing on broadening the the audiences that can get solar, as opposed to trying to compete head to head with the solar industry. And to be I, fair, I, that
0: was one of the cases that Arizona Public Service made when pitching this initial program, right?
2: And where they have to focus in the program itself. And I think that's—I I mean, I totally agree with Jigger. I think to the extent that it makes sense for utilities to own rooftop solar, it makes sense to own it where there's a market gap or a grid need in particular. If it—if it is good at all, and I, you know, I think utilities generally recognize that to the extent that they're going to propose these programs
0: next one there are going to be two acquisitions at least two acquisitions of distributed solar companies by uh, utilities either unregulated uh, or competitive retailers any utilities um, stand out to you
2: yeah well so i guess first the the uh, prediction was that there will be at least two more acquisitions of distributed solar companies by utility affiliates so I, I, just to be clear i don 't think any regulated utilities are, are buying distributed solar companies but I think they're unregulated arms they're subs or competitive retailers you can decide whether you want to call them utilities or not will so there 's been a wave of this over the past couple of years and since I made that prediction that one's already half true because one acquisition has already happened which was AES uh, bought Main, Main Street power last month. So that one's already halfway true. Um, but I think what you, know, you could do to try to guess at it otherwise is just look at all of the big IPPs and then check off the ones that don't yet have a distributed solar investment or acquisition that they've made. And I think pretty much the rest of them will get into the game over the next couple of years. So are there any solar companies that you think are good
0: acquisition co- targets from these uh, utility affiliates?
2: It's an interesting question. Uh, there are still some relatively successful distributed solar companies that are as of yet unattached to anybody. It's actually a pretty dwindling number if you're talking about the big companies, but among them, Varengo Solar on the residential side, they've been sort of scaling back and are now primarily focused in Southern California, but they're actually a big installer in Southern California. So you could see utility sort of buying them and then trying to expand out again beyond that. On the commercial side, there are actually a lot more companies there, but Borrego Solar is a big one. If you had a if you had a reasonably sized checkbook, uh, Borrego is in multi states. They have a pretty good business. They've been around a long time and they keep growing. So. If I were a utility affiliate with a big checkbook, I'd look at them. Do you think you're going to go 7 for 7? Uh. uh, I don't know. The uh I will say this. Are you going to throw I a specifically... party there if you do? I mean, what Oh man. <laughs> I'll feel great. I'll, I'll, I'll allow myself to be called soothsayer at that point. <laughs> the thing was, when I was coming up with these predictions, I, I sort of—I don't know why I did it—because I'm sort of sick of people coming up with you know predictions for any given market. But I, I tried to make it a little bit harder on myself in that I think every one of these predictions is objectively measurable. So I'm either going to be right or I'm going to be wrong, and everyone's going to agree. There's a lot of predictions, like you can give yourself. Partial credit, and you could sort of bend the world to fit the prediction. In this case, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be right, or I'm going to be wrong. I'd be amazed if I got all seven, but it'd be great. Well, it's hard to it's hard to be perfect in the March Madness. <laughs> yeah, the March Madness of solar in the rush <laughs> before 2017.
0: Maybe we should what, set I up a your... contest.
2: Yeah, we should. We we should absolutely have
1: like the craziest predictions, and then have people like actually like put together brackets for that. Sure, um, the, like the commenters like commenters
2: on green tech media would love that
1: <laughs> well the one thing i'd i I'd love your take on is last week's episode on the i t c piece um you know like we've talked back and forth at the last solar conference you said that you know you thought even after the i t c went down to ten percent for commercial and zero for residential, solar would still be cost
2: effective in thirty plus states. No, not 30-plus states. No, no. Um, We said that it would be – it depends on the segment, but it's more like 10 to 15 states at that point. And even there, sort of the cost effectiveness gets a lot tighter. But I thought last week – actually, I listened to it. I really liked it. I thought you and Barry both made really good points. And I thought in the end, you guys came to something of a consensus, which surprised me, but also was a consensus that largely I think I agree with, which is that you know we can agree that ITC expiration will do – damage to a lot of companies, right, especially the smaller companies. And so to the extent that it has any immediate impact, it is to stack the deck further in favor of the big solar companies against the little solar companies. Um, And so then you can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad thing and whether that's how the market should ultimately go. But I think you and Barry, it sounded like at least agreed on that point.
1: Well, I mean, I guess I'm not so sure about that. The reason why people believe that right now is they believe that The world of finance is captured by large solar developers. But I think what you're seeing over the next 18 months is a democratization of finance, whether it's dividend solar or SunGage or NRG or others. They're actually
2: going after anybody who's installing 10 units a a month. I actually think there's less of that than there was years ago. I mean, initially, there was, you know, when residential financing in particular started to pop up, you had two business models. You had the Solar City Vivint business model, which was we do it all ourselves. And then you had the partner network business model, which is what Clean Power Finance and NRG and Sunrun and those guys were all doing. And a lot of them, including NRG and Sunrun, have leaned back toward. Solar City model, and so you just don't have that many companies yet that are there to serve the needs of the small installers. CPF is still there, SunPower is still there to do it, but on balance, it seems to me like it's harder if you're a really small installer to make sure you have access to competitive financing.
1: Well, you know, we'll, time will tell. I mean, I don't think the industry is going to be harmed that badly in 2017. I think that that's the story that came out of Germany and and the UK when their subsidy shifted downward.
0: Well, if you haven't listened to it. Go back and listen to last week's episode, folks. It's a really good one. And if you haven't read Shale's prediction piece, you can find it on the show notes of this week's podcast at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Check it out. And uh let's go on to the third topic. And one of the trends that you left out, Shale, in one of your in your predictions, was this convergence of home energy management offerings and solar technologies. Many many solar companies are branding themselves as energy service providers, not just P V installers. Certainly not a new trend, but recent news Continues to reflect this shift. Sun Power recently made a $20 million investment in Tendril, and the microinverter company Enphase is looking to partner with Nest to enhance its software and expand monitoring to other areas of the home. So, so solar is just one subset of this vast but ever more refined ecosystem of home energy management. And uh, GTM, GTM Research's very own Omar Sade is out with a fantastic new report on the market. And I want to discuss that in this last section. It really is a, a great report looking at the history uh, and, and evolution of home energy management from point solutions now to the partnerships that we see. Um, and Jigar, I'm actually just curious. Um, I don't know if you, you got to read the report, but solar does seem to be, be this uh, very interesting entry point to home energy management now. And I'm curious if you think that that's a, a good business model for a company like SunPower, a company like a technology company like Enphase, does that home energy management piece, where they network with other technologies, seem viable to you?
1: Well, I think there's two trends that you know you're sort of like looking at. One being the discussion we just had on the can- the, the ITC going away. So one of the ways to do this is to say. Sell solar at like a 1 or 2 or 3% savings, but then offer these other things like a free Nest thermostat or a free whatever it is that saves them a lot of money on energy efficiency. So the net package actually saves money. And so you see people like Posigen and others doing that. I think the other the other approach here is that I think when you think about the growth rates that Solar City and other folks are faced with right now, I think that's why Solar City is backed off of energy efficiency because every person working there is focused on hitting their growth rates. but in 2017, I think you could see that if their growth rates actually come down below twenty percent annual growth rates, then they will you know look to diversify by cross selling these types of
2: products to their existing customer base, yeah. I agree and I but I also think that you know to put it in kind of a broader context I think solar thus far as has largely existed in something of a silo for residential solar. And it's turned out to be really successful in that silo and has become kind of a rocket ship of growth. But now we're starting to see more and more of these adjacent technologies actually look attractive to customers and new solutions for them. So that's some efficiency stuff, but home energy management is a huge part of it and load control, energy storage, electric vehicles, like all these things tie in together in a manner that I think ultimately, you know, customers aren't going to want to be signing up for every single one of these things individually and then figuring out how to network them all together and optimize all of them against their utility rates and things like that. That should all happen in the background. And so you know, how does it all get linked up to each other and when does it make sense for each company to sort of tie up with other parts of the value chain is an interesting question. On the commercial side too, and I'm curious to hear Jigger's perspective on this one, there was an announcement uh, last week or two weeks ago of a partnership between SunPower and Enernoc. So they're basically cross-selling to each other's partner, their networks, uh, their clientele, and they're offering services to their own clients from each other. So it's both load management and demand response from Enernoc and then obviously solar from SunPower and potentially storage as well. So it's another example of sort of convergence of these technologies as things get a little more complex.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's. I mean, it makes sense to me. But who benefits the most from that?
1: It's about the system. So when you look at the amount of money that Solar City, for instance, has invested in microgrids and some of this other stuff, or Peter Rive has talked a lot about how he really wants to make you know sort of on-demand water heaters you know standard within solar. Um, packages that he's doing, and the reason for that is because then he can help shape the load curve for the customer. I think the same thing's true on the commercial side between SunPower and Enernoc. When you look at the worst part of the demand picture for utilities, it's really, um, and we had this on the Pecan Street segment that we had in one of our podcasts, Um, it's really HVAC. And so what Enernoc can really do is through demand response and load control, actually help to control the HVAC and use it as a way to do demand and load and demand uh, savings, so that you can actually protect the demand savings that the solar could provide, but you know isn't able to guarantee because if you know cloud goes overhead or something like that, the demand could spike. So that level of integration could dramatically increase the amount of savings
2: for commercial solar customers. Yeah, I think to answer your question, Stephen, who benefits the most in theory, if it all works right, the customer benefits the most. Right? You, you end up with a solution that sort of operates on its own in the background with multiple technologies that serve different purposes and have different value streams. And they align with what your electricity rates look like and what your tariff structure is. And at the end of the day, you're generating your own electricity. You're saving some of it. You're you know using energy at the right time and you save on your bill more so than you would have with any given one of these technologies individually.
0: One of the things I'm struck by – And uh, I've only recently seen as a potential driver for solar companies getting into the broader connected home is, you know, more sophisticated rate design where you have residential demand charges. You have utilities uh, adding, you know, high demand charges or fees on net metering, and you shift Consumption. And uh, that, you know, provides an impetus for solar companies to figure out ways to partner with other technology vendors or develop their own solutions to, um, you know, get consumers thinking more holistically about how they're consuming energy from their solar system or the grid.
2: Yeah, we, we were just actually, that's funny timing this morning. Um, some of the people in GTM research here were working through this model that we've been building that is trying to quantify that and say, basically, when does it make sense to start bundling these technologies together as rate structures change? And so we're, we're doing a hypothetical example, uh, that I'm going to run through in public in a couple of weeks, but it basically involves what happens if in a California IOU, if they change net metering such that export generation uh, gets a lower rate than you know generation that 's used on site right so this is if what utilities get generally what they want, which is they want a lower export tariff. Um, for when you're using solar. So then obviously the question is, what if you install storage, right? If you install storage, you can export less. And simultaneously in California, you have time of use rates that allow you to sort of optimize your load a little bit using storage. So what if you do all of that? Can you actually get to the point where residential storage makes economic sense, which it it doesn't in most of the country right now otherwise? And the answer, at least that we're finding preliminarily, is that in some cases it does. So you can can kind of drastically... uh, move in the time frame under which storage is going to be economic for residential applications if you change rate structures to force it that way.
1: Yeah, I think, but one of the things I just want to make sure we highlight is that You know, customers only have, let's call it, 10 or so important relationships, which is why sort of AT&T matters. It's, you know, your Verizon or your Comcast or or whatnot. I think what's important is, like, for instance, when you look at Nest, I don't think Nest has a very good relationship with its customers. I think people think it's a cool whiz-bang thing that they purchased. I don't think they're like, oh, yeah, now Nest, why don't you take full control of my energy, you know, for my house? Whereas I think a lot of their solar providers, they're not actually doing it. It's, I mean, it's not something that anybody with a Nest thermostat doesn't go, hey, Nest, why don't you come in here and actually manage my HVAC? Why don't you replace one of my water heaters with an on-demand water heater? Why don't you make all these fundamental changes to my house? No, nobody trusts Nest to do that.
0: They've shown that their peak savings program, they, like a large, I forgot what the numbers are, I don't have them in front of me, but a lot of their customers are allowing them to take control of the HVAC and to pre-cool the house or to turn down the cooling during peak events. I mean, yeah, what but, Nest is, what, but but Net customers are allowing Nest to do what they're say they're going to do. I don't know that they've said that they're going to do anything broader than that for, for now.
1: Right. But we're talking about home energy platforms, right? And we're talking about the convergence of all these technologies. Like as somebody who uses Nest, Like I don't trust Nest to give me lots of other advice, right? But like for some – but I do trust my solar company to give me lots of other advice because solar companies are tier one partners. You're talking about a 20-year relationship with an $18,000 piece of hardware with a very – close you know, relationship with an actual human being. You know who the salesperson is that sold you that system. That's not true for Nest or some of these other things. The same thing's true with Verizon or Comcast or AT&T. So I think solar is part of this tier one echelon. It's the same problem that Enernoch has. Enernoc's not viewed as tier one for their partners. That's why they need to partner with someone like SunPower because SunPower is viewed as tier one with their commercial solar customers.
0: Going back to Nest, that's why I think they've opened up their developer network, and they're trying to get a lot of other technology providers uh, and software developers uh, using their API so that they could potentially build trusted services off of Nest's thermostat. So I think they probably recognize that, and you're going to see that broader ecosystem emerge around uh, them opening up their API.
2: Yeah, and I think I think Nest just being in the home that that ultimately is an advantage for Nest as far as be, having a relationship with a customer versus a a solar company or just a solar installation. I, you know, there's apps that come with your solar depending on where you're getting it installed from, and that matters. But over the long term, I think the solar companies want to be inside the home one way or another as well, and that's why they are also looking at trying to ways to you know tie up with Hems companies.
1: Yeah. So- but you're seriously comparing Nest with. A T and T or Solar City. I mean it's not even a fair comparison. Nest is a toy that people put on to the to the like you know, the roof. I get the, I mean, in their house. I get the fact that you can use that to dramatically reduce HVAC demand and load, so it's actually useful to the actual grid. I get that they're useful, but I mean, the relationship they have with their customer is, is the same relationship I have with my toaster oven. <laughs> I don't know. You know do you like, talk about your I toaster oven? Or your smoke oven? alarm. It, all the it time? is. It is. I like, well, I mean, like, I, I, I have smart devices where I set it the night before, I can put stuff in it, and by the morning, it actually has breakfast ready for me. I can do that stuff, and I love it. But that doesn't mean I'm actually going to trust any recommendations they give me on whole, whole house and home energy management.
0: So do you have, like, know. contraptions set up like Pee Wee Herman did to run things yeah, in his kitchen? Yeah, exactly. I, I, well, I like, you
1: know, having, like, the old school oatmeal that it, like, takes, you know, sort of like two hours to make. So I set it the night before, and then it makes it in the morning, and it's nice. Nest,
0: that's your new market. Oatmeal. Exactly. Uh, no, but for real, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the uh, solar component and the the energy company side but speaking of at&t and others let's talk about the telcos because this is these are companies that have a huge in in the home um they're already providing the entertainment service and the, the security services to customers why not add energy we of course have seen a number of uh, companies open up their home energy management offerings um does how how far does this swing them into energy shale i mean is this just an add-on So far, and and, and then they're not totally serious about it? Or do they really want to get deep into the energy side? I haven't quite figured that out. There've been a lot of announcements, but energy still seems to be a pretty small piece of this when you consider the connected home.
2: Yeah. I, I think I tend to agree. I mean, I won't pretend to know what's in their minds and what their strategies look like over the long term, but at least what I've seen so far, it just sort of feels to me like most of the telcos that are are doing anything in home energy management are doing it as just another sort of set of tendrils within the home. And it's they're not – focusing on like energy is the next big thing for us. I, I don't get that sense from any of them. The sense that I get is that like they're in the home. This is another part of the home. It's actually an important part of the home. So we should probably be doing something and we should connect it as much as possible to our platform that does all this other stuff. But it's not the end all and be all where you have a lot of energy companies that are coming in and focusing entirely on how to optimize energy in the home. And I think ultimately that's a, that's a better value proposition because energy is something of a unique you know yeah. attribute of the home and home usage.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that recognition that it's not the next big thing, right? And to approach it cautiously is a good thing for these companies because the first iteration of home energy management, you had people who saw energy management as a point solution and that largely failed. Consumers don't want to invest in expensive hardware and have an entirely new screen and dashboard to monitor energy use and perhaps save a couple bucks each month. So perhaps the cautious approach to this is a good sign that they think they can bundle this together and then people will one day wake up and realize that they can control their energy in new ways.
1: Yeah, well, energy efficiency has been uninspiring since 1975. I think when you think about like what's worked, though, like there's this People Power's Presence Pro Energy Pilot Program, which is, you know, People Power has a an app that allows you to like um, turn on remotely an old cell phone's video, so you can check up on your mother or father or kids or whatever at home. And, then, and, and they were the number one downloaded app in the Apple iTunes store sometime around December. And then they've been able to cross-sell a lot of those people an energy pilot program that saved customers 9 to 10% um, on their energy. But people downloaded the app because they actually wanted to be able to check in on their parents or whatever else at home, not, um, not because they wanted to
2: save energy. Did you? Um, this is astounding. That's a, that's the best alliteration I've ever heard. Do you say it was a People Power's Presence Pro Pilot Program? <laughs> that, yeah, it's literally
1: like P P P P E P P, and so it's <sighs> People Power's Presence Pro Energy Pilot Program. But the guy's name is Gene Wang. He's the CEO of People Power. It's one of the the. It was one of the top it was the top downloaded app at the end of the year last year and so it's a great app and it you know basically you can take an old iphone stick it somewhere and then you can ip address it so you can remotely turn on the video when you want to see what's going on at home
0: all right well i should end it there um there is so much more to the report than what we talked about. It is real. I don't say this just because it's a GTM Research report, but I read it a couple of days ago, and I thought it was one of the best descriptions of, of where things are at in the Hems market. And, he, and Omar has a lot of really good stuff in there about standards and about security and sort of peer-to-peer communication and where processing is going to be done. A, a, a very helpful report to anyone who's interested in this space, particularly solar companies that are out there that are trying to figure out how to get into it. Um, So let's tell our listeners something they do not know. And Shale, as our guest co-host, you get to go first.
2: Great. All right. I'm going to tie on to something that we talked about a little bit before, which is utilities investing in in solar. And I'll give you a statistic, which is um, there are over 20 unregulated affiliates of utilities that have made an investment in or an acquisition in distributed solar in the US, more than 20 already.
0: That's incredible. And, and
1: why don't you make a prediction? What percentage That's of those right. will get shut down by 2020?
2: Uh, well, a lot of those are minority investments, right? Like Clean Power Finance raised a, a equity round a few years back that had Duke, Dominion, Edison, and NextEra all in it. So if CPF goes under, I guess that drops four of them off all at once. But uh, as far as the ones that have made acquisitions, I think most of them are in pretty good standing right now. Some of them are too early to tell. And then there's one or two... That made an acquisition and just haven't been able to figure out how to make distributed solar work yet. So I think that most of them are going to exist in five or 10 years, but maybe I'm too optimistic.
0: All right, Jigger, what's your story? Tell us something we do not know. So, you
1: know, the state of California has imposed this really strong drought, you know, resistance measures to help people and whatnot. It's extraordinary how, like, restrictions
0: for the first time in history, right?
1: Yeah, but it's only for like the 10% of water usage that individuals use and they basically bypassed corporate farms. Um but but what's in the stat that I saw which was interesting is so there's this big movement of like cricket farms for cricket protein. I'm sure you know about it Steven from your bodybuilding. I don't bodybuild.
0: How many times do I have to tell you this? It's I don't lift for aesthetics, I lift for strength. Power lifting's different
1: well I still think you're a very attractive <laughs> man, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so cricket farms basically—it's such an efficient way of producing protein that compared to soy protein, which is used to feed beef and you know and poultry and others across the country, um, a twenty five hundred ton um, cricket uh, protein production facility would save a billion gallons of water per year.
0: That's incredible. And let me just say that at summer camp, between six and ten years old, I would eat crickets, fried crickets. Uh, nearly every day, and I can highly recommend them. I've never had cricket protein powder, but they are damn good fried up. So, I, I've just been studying crickets. I have to say, it's weird. Like, I mean, so there's a plant in
1: Youngstown, Ohio, that ships out uh, cricket protein. A lot of bakers use it in their cakes to make their cakes and pastries like have more protein in it.
0: And you can find them in your Snickers bars, including ants and grasshoppers and everything else. Right? It's so awesome. All right. Well, I'm in favor of it. Shoot, if it saves water. Even better. Uh, So mine is on Richard Branson, and he made headlines a couple weeks ago by saying that he had teams of people working on electric cars uh, and then referred directly to Tesla. And he said, you never know, we might find ourselves competing with Tesla in the car business as we do in the space business. So everyone was speculating on what was going on behind the scenes at Virgin, and uh, we have a couple of guys who are reporting on a storage for us, and and they reached out to Virgin, and uh, their the spokesman Nick Fox clarified and said very clearly, we are not developing electric vehicles. We are developing an electric race car, and Richard Branson's Virgin, of course, has an electric race car team. It's a really cool car, by the way. The electric car racing is really neat, um, and so that clears it up. There was a ton of speculation about these two billionaires, Elon Musk and uh, Richard Branson going to -to head-to-head on the electric vehicles. But alas, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. I just wanted to dispel that rumor in case people hadn't seen the additional reporting on the comments.
2: I I have a question that is uh, for Jigger mostly, since I know you know Richard Branson from the Carbon War Room days, which is uh, when I read all that news, it just felt to me like he was purposefully fostering all this speculation. Like he knew when he said that, you know, maybe we'll find ourselves competing with Tesla. He had to know what that was going to create. And it it just felt like if he knew that wasn't really going to be the case, why did he say it if not to just get some attention? Is is he the kind of guy, jigger that would do that? Or do you feel like he had some other motive?
1: Well, I mean, look, I mean, he he absolutely gets more free column inches of news than any other person in the world. So, you know, this whole earned media thing is something he's a master at. But he didn't do it just to, I think, um, be – um, um, Self aggrandizing. I think he did it because he's trying to promote the electric vehicle racing circuit that he's a part of. And, you mm-hmm. know, this was a surreptitious way of him, like, putting this feeler out and getting Steven to research it and all that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, like, his team is going to be worth a lot more money if more people watch um, electric vehicle racing. Uh-huh. That makes sense.
0: Well, that's it. Thanks for being here, folks. It's time to leave. Before we go, a big thanks to our new sponsor, Rena We are so happy to have their support. You can keep the conversation going at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Leave us comments, interact with your fellow listeners, and listen to previous episodes. And if you want to connect with us directly, send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. That's podcasts, plural, at greentechmedia.com. Shale, good show this week. Thanks for filling in. Always a pleasure.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Jigger, good times. Have a good week, and we'll catch you next week.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to uh, learning more about this, you know, Iran nuclear deal and how many nuclear reactors we're going to allow Iran to build.
0: And we're going to have Steve McBee, the CEO, the new CEO of Energy Home. I don't know that he's going to be talking about Iran. Maybe you can quiz him (laughs) on that, Jigger. but it'll certainly be an enlightening conversation. With Shail Khan and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you next week.